This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The city of Seattle last week became the nation's first to ban discrimination on the basis of caste. South Asian workers, particularly in the tech industry and beyond, have experienced caste-based discrimination at the hands of upper caste Hindus in a way that in ways that have been invisible to non-South Asians. Now, activists who passed the Seattle ordinance hope to replicate their success in other cities. My guest is Tenmori Saundara Rajan. She's a Dalit technologist, artist, and activist. She's the founder of Equality Labs, a Dalit civil rights organization working to empower caste-oppressed people. And she's also the author of The Trauma of Caste, a Dalit feminist meditation on survivorship, healing, and abolition. She recently wrote a story for Yes Magazine about the historic Seattle ordinance. Welcome to the program, Tenmori. Oh, JP and Jay Savitri, and so excited to be here, Sonali. We did it. Amazing. Congratulations to you. So for those of, among our audience, um, I will certainly point you to the article that lays out how you got here. But tell our TV and radio audience what it was that led to this moment to make Seattle the first city to ban discrimination on the basis of caste. There were a lot of moving pieces. And of course, like any success and victory like this, I imagine it was years in the making. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, for folks who may not know a lot about this issue, you know, caste is a significant axis of discrimination, both within the South Asian community and across many industries um, that operate in Seattle and many American cities, whether it's tech, whether it's restaurant workers, whether it's building trades, whether it's, you know, domestic workers, we're seeing significant amounts of caste oppressed workers who are really asking for, you know, remedy to the kinds of grave discrimination that they're facing. And the thing that was remarkable of Seattle is that this win was a result of over 10 years of Dalit feminist um, organizing, bringing together people who work around survivor issues and building survivor power in the city with people who are working on issues related to racial justice, gender justice, and very crucially, workers' rights. And, and I think that, you know, those seeds were started in 2015, um, you know, with the Dalit Women Fight Tour, where um, our colleagues brought, you know, our allies in South Asia to talk about caste-based gender violence. And this activated a really powerful energy in the city about what does Dalit internationalism, you know, or caste oppressed internationalism uh, look like when it's connected to other feminist and racial justice internationalisms? And, those relationships really catalyzed partnerships in the city between my organization, Equality Labs, um, API Chaya, which is one of the leading um, Asian Pacific Island organizations working around survivor issues in the city, and Ambedkar Association of North America, where for several years, we worked on cases related to caste-oppressed domestic violence survivors and survivors of trafficking and, um, uh, you know, abuse of like domestic workers. And that partnership really is what catalyzed so many of the activated relationships that we saw go into this <clears throat> resolution, because Again, when you have feminist worker and racial and caste alliances like this, you unlock the potential power of thousands of workers and survivor power advocates. 
And so those folks, you know, not only work to support those individual cases, but we also mobilized to get the first congressional hearing briefing in um, Congress with, you know, uh, Representative Primala J. Paul. Uh, also, Equality Labs did the first survey around um, establishing that caste existed in the United States. And that data, coupled with the incredible stories of Seattle-based organizers, um, was really incredible, especially since we had a coalition of over 200 organizations from around the city and the nation right in. We also had major unions that also came forward, including the, um, the Asian Pacific arm of the AFL-CIO, um, APALA, as well as the Alphabet Workers Union and uh, the Tech Workers for Caste Equity Workers Collective. And then crucially, 20 different caste-depressed organizations from all across the country, including Ambedkar Association of North America, Ambedkar King Studies Circle, um, Ambedkar International Center, and many, many others, representing hundreds of thousands of caste-depressed voices in North America, all wrote in. And, um, and were part of the testimony process. And I think that really was what galvanized this moment. And it's, you know, to me, I think this movement is such a beacon of hope because it shows the strength of what an intercaste, multi-faith, interracial movement can do when love is unleashed. You know, we can meet the bigotry and the violence of those that want to throw us back um, into discrimination with love and intersectional power that is really rooted in empathy, healing, and reconciliation. So and, in, and in Seattle, this is amazing. I understand. So all of this, you know, years and years of groundwork nationally, but also in the city itself, you understand you worked with uh, city council member Kshama Sawant, who helped to lead uh, the, you know, bringing the ordinance to the city council for a vote. And Councilwoman so, um, uh, Kashama Sawant and also the Coalition for um, uh, Indian Americans of Seattle, um, as well as many other gender-based and racial justice activists and organizations in the city. And what was so moving was to hear just very, very um, uh, just emotional testimony. You know, I always remember, you know, the testimony of Rita from uh, Tasvir, who came out as Adivasi as part of this campaign, or an indigenous community from South Asia. And and, and Tanmori, when you say came out, uh, can you explain that? Yeah. Because a lot of South, uh, South Asians who are Dalits um, or hail from, you know, what were once known as the un so-called untouchable caste, they live in the shadows. They live in fear of being outed, if you will, right? Yes, and this is actually one of the crucial points about why caste-oppressed workers and caste-oppressed communities are asking for caste to be made explicit, is that the discrimination we're facing is quite severe. You know, in our own research at Equality Labs, we found that one in four caste-oppressed people experience physical and verbal um, violence. One out of three um, educational discrimination and two out of three workplace discrimination. And as a result, over the half the people that took our survey said that they would prefer to live in the closet than come out because they don't want to face this violence. So what was so moving about the testimony, and these were grueling, you know, public comment hearings, <clears throat> was that people braved rape threats, death threats, open bigotry, gaslighting, disinformation, to turn their pain into power. 
And I was so honored to just stand by so many fellow um, cast depressed um, organizers and watch them just act with such courage. And for example, we had organizers from Embedcare King Study Circle and Embedcare Association of North America and Embedcare International Center stay up at two in the morning two in the morning to give public comment at two in the afternoon. So 12 hours in the middle of snow and rain because it mattered that much to tell their story. And organizers from the, you know, the coalition of Seattle Indians, they really helped to bring together this network of folks all across the city and the country so that people could have a safe space to testify because of all of that violence. And Rita, who I mentioned from Tesvir, she had not been previously out as a caste oppressed indigenous person. And she came out and as she was speaking, her voice trembled with the, you know, I'm assuming like both the fear and the courage and the tremendous emotionality of what it means to have to come out to say, we need the violence to stop and we are here and we need a remedy. And, and I think that was an unstoppable force, the love and the courage of cast oppressed people and our allies. You know, the Seattle City Council could not but, you know, pass this historic measure. And, and I think what's really important for listeners to know is that, you know, today, you know, yesterday it was Seattle, you know, tomorrow it'll be the nation because at Equality Labs, we have been hearing requests from people all across the world who now wanna add caste as a protected category because they are seeing significant discrimination um, existing wherever South Asians um, are. Right. And so it's a very, it's a big watershed moment but it's been built by Dalit, you know, feminist leaders uh, for the last like 10 to 15 years. And it's incredible to see that work, you know, just blossom in the way that it is. So let's talk specifically about the Seattle ordinance. Um, did it pass by a wide margin? And what does it now mean? What does it mean for Seattle to have this anti-discrimination aspect as focusing on caste within the city? How will it be? enforced, applied and enforced? Well, I think one thing that was really important is that the, the bill, the ordinance passed like six to one. So there was one dissenting vote, but the overwhelming majority was with caste oppressed people. And, and I think a big part of that had to do with the fact that this is a union and worker struggle. And the fact that we are hearing so many prominent cases, you know, whether it's the state of California suing Cisco Corporation, for caste discrimination, or in New Jersey, where we see hundreds of workers that were trafficked by the religious institution BAPS, um, who were called worm and paid a dollar an hour to build these religious temples across the country, or in Berkeley, you know, where Lucky Bolly Reddy, one of the largest landlords in the city of Berkeley, trafficked hundreds of workers, including 20 young girls, many of whom were minors to be his sex slaves. This and is who were Dalit. Yes, and who were Dalit. This is why it's such a serious issue. This isn't about personal feelings or just microaggressions, which themselves are also quite serious. This is actually grave civil rights and labor harms. And so this is why this move is so historic because, you know, with this ordinance, the, you know, any caste oppressed person 
can come forward and file a complaint to the city saying that they're experiencing caste discrimination in their workplace, in their community institution, in their places of worship, and the city will investigate. And if the city finds harm, there will be penalties, you know, according to whatever the penalty schedule that exists related to um, the city of Seattle. So before that remedy was not there. And there are actually several companies that work in Seattle where workers have been asking for caste to be added as a protected caste category. And I'm thinking about in particular Google, who has thousands of workers that work in the city of Seattle and um, uh, the state of Washington. Workers there have been rallying around asking management to have caste as a protected category. Well, now there's like a huge mandate because you have one of the first jurisdictions in the United States that's asking for it. There are workers that are impacted that have already reached out to management. And now it's the onus will be on the businesses to address the severe discrimination that caste oppressed people are facing within their premises. What has the response been like? Um, you know, this is an issue that Hindu supremacists uh, have taken very personally. There's been huge pushback, often couched in terms that are deceptive or hard for non-South Asians to make sense of. Um, so I imagine that there's been some backlash already since Seattle, passed, Seattle City Council passed this ordinance last week. So yes, there's no question that there are people who are really sitting in their fragility around this issue. And, you know, we know that. We know that the flow of progress is always meant with those who dissent, particularly if they've benefited from the exploitation and uh, discriminatory networks that they've created around the system of exclusion that they're operating in. But, you know, the civil rights obligation isn't um, about addressing the fragility of the privilege, it's about stopping grave discriminatory harm. So I think the fact that we won the this ordinance and we are set up in many places where people are really um, powerfully activated to stop more harm happening to caste oppressed peoples, that's an incredible movement victory and a movement win. And I also think that, you know, the caste equity movement is a movement that's rooted in empathy, and caste reconciliation. And so I really, you know, I wanna reach out to those people who are the opponents to this issue and ask them to just sit down a little bit and slow down and listen to the testimonies. You know, we're no longer in a place where we have to say, does caste exist in North America? It's here. There is data and there are stories and that's not contestable. However, I think that we can really begin a process of reconciliation when people are really able to start to, to listen with a deep empathetic witness that, okay, historical harm has existed because of caste. I can feel you know, discomfort. I can feel you know, worry, like what does this mean for me? But those are feelings that you can talk through with other members of your community. Choosing to litigate your fragility, choosing to openly do rape threats and death threats and disinformation at caste oppressed civil rights groups doesn't really actually help your cause. It actually just proves the reasons why we need civil rights protections. So I, I encourage them to put down the sword of bigotry and to join us because frankly, not only are the majority of South Asian Americans in favor of caste equity protections, but also increasingly more and more Americans um, who are part of these really powerful intersectional collaborations that are bringing together survivor advocates, feminists, you know, 
racial justice and worker rights um, uh, and unions um, are coming together on this issue, it's really an unstoppable force. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I would just encourage people to join us because it's a very loving place to heal from caste. But we can't heal from caste until we ban it because we've got to stop the discrimination from happening. So I, I hope that they stop and they join us. You know, the door is always open, but, you know, fragility takes a long time to, to unravel. So we'll see what they do. In, in your story at Yes, you write, if you are not a bigot, such a policy will not harm you. It's as simple as that. Um, so when we think about bigotry now, um, as you said, there's caste uh, awareness and discrimination wherever there are South Asians in the United States. You know, it's not just the tech industry and cities like Seattle or in Silicon Valley in California, um, you know, or, or in companies like Google, it's it's all over because South Asians have been in the United States for a long time. What is the future of this? Is Seattle, you hope, the first of many other efforts across the country? Uh, you mentioned that a lot of people are already getting in touch with you to see how they can replicate this in their own city. Absolutely. And, you know, Sonali, I have to keep some secrets close to my chest because, you know, otherwise I may not be able to see you for a while because I know your book is coming out. But um, <laughs> I do want to assure all of the listeners and viewers online um, that Seattle won't be the first. And there are many. It won't many, be the last. Yeah, it won't be the last. It's really the, you know, it's such a powerful movement that's that's really snowballing because the Seattle wind has a multiplier effect. People that were just waiting to, you know, get up off the sidelines to step forward are now just like, you know, signing in, rolling up their sleeves and ready uh, to build these coalitions. Because again, you know, people want to heal. You know, when you have historical violence, you know, from systems of exclusion, whether it's race or caste or patriarchy, we want to move beyond the polarization and get to a place of reconciliation. And I think what I've seen that's been so powerful in this movement is that there is another vision of what it means to be South Asian that is stepping forward because it's rooted in looking at our historical harms quite clearly and asking to heal. And I don't think very many people have ever been in a multiracial, intercaste, interfaith coalition where that's so centered. So you have dominant caste Hindus that were formerly part of these Hindu right organizations who have said, I don't want to be part of those politics of hate. I want to connect with my people. I want to stop the dehumanization. I want to be with my caste press kin. Mm -hmm. And to see that across all faiths, like we had representatives from the Sikh faith, the Christian faith, you know, Buddhists, we had everyone at the table because again it is so powerful to be able to heal as opposed to be um in a in a, a trauma ward of you know fragility and bigotry and so you know love won that day and i think love will continue to win all across the country finally tenmori i'm, I'm always very fascinated with the ingredients for success and what it takes to put together you know, this kind of success. Um, people who are newly activated, maybe young folks who are interested in political activism, may not see the painstaking work that goes into creating such victories. And we talked about it earlier, but you mentioned, you know, there's now data. There was a time when there wasn't data. And so your organization, Equality Labs, 
did the work because you were faced with uh, denial. There is no such thing as caste. And so you set out to prove that there was by doing the social science that was required. So there's years and years of painstaking data gathering, right? And then there's all the co uh, coalition building. There's also things like having allies in elected office who are progressive minded and social justice oriented who will, who will um, bring the issue to a place where you can translate cultural shift into policy shift. All of those pieces have to fall into place painstakingly through hard work, through sleepless nights to achieve justice and victory, right? Absolutely. And I think that <clears throat> for all those baby organizers that are listening, or maybe even those elder organizers that are watching, you know, many years of their activism being rolled back by the forces of bigotry and fascism. You know, I, I just want to say that this is a movement that I think can be a beacon of hope because it was a, a win that really showed that you can beat back the forces of fascism and bigotry with a powerful multiracial feminist worker and caste and racial and gender justice coalition. That was the only way that we could have like pushed through something like this. And that work doesn't happen transaction, you know, transactionally. It's not like, hey, I need this call. Can I come through? This is literally about years of carrying each other's water, learning about each other's movements, breaking bread, sitting with people in both the hard times and in the times of celebration. And that's why I'm saying, you know, you can't deconstruct this win to a period of a month. It's really 10 years of relationship building. And so I want to, you know, everyone that's on the sidelines of social change that might be thinking, you know, this is such a hard time. People feel so polarized. Can I really make a difference? And I can tell you, everyone can make a difference. Everyone can make a call. Everyone can show up to an allied meeting. Everyone can break bread and serve food um, at a session. And there are so many different tactical chain, you know, processes that go to building a beloved community around justice. And I think people sometimes think leaders are people that are up there and they're the ones that give the speeches. But actually, there is an entire web of love that goes into building people power because our opponents, they may have lots of money. They actually may also have physical violence, but they don't have our numbers. They don't have our courage. They don't have our love. And that's why we're ultimately going to win. Thank you so much, Tenmori, for joining us today and for the work you do. Um, we'll post a link to your story at Yes Magazine from our website. Good luck to you and can't wait to see what comes next. Yes, can't wait to be back. And if folks want to, you know, join the caste equity movement, please follow us on Equality Labs and join our newsletter. We'll have updates on our future campaigns. And, you know, it's it's always a pleasure, Sonali. And thank you so much for flanking our movement. It's so powerful to grow up as an organizer mm. with you and also Likewise. to see this work come to fruition like this. So Likewise. and bye everyone. Thank you so much. My guest has been Tenmori Sandararajan. She's a Dalit tech technologist, artist, and activist, founder of Equality Labs, and author of The Trauma of Caste, a Dalit feminist meditation on survivorship, 
Healing and Abolition, which I reviewed for a past issue of Yes magazine. We've been discussing Seattle's caste discrimination ordinance, which she also recently wrote about for Yes magazine. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website at risingupwithsonali.com by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.